seeing God's desire to bring his people back to him in the book of Isaiah resonates with me. I believe no matter where we are in life, we should remember we can always ask God to help us turn back to him, and he will be faithful to love and save us. Through Isaiah, God promised that the one who would save us, the Messiah, would come humbly. He told us, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and will call him Emmanuel. The book of Luke tells how God sent the angel Gabriel to visit a virgin. The angel tells her that she will conceive and give birth to a son and name him Jesus. This ordinary, humble virgin was Mary, Jesus' mother. He was named Jesus, but he is Emmanuel which means God with us. Messiah was born humbly as a baby to a virgin with no wealth or status. God always keeps his promises. Probably you've noticed that each of the bumper videos in this series are made by people who are part of our faith family, but who have uh, Jewish uh, roots. And uh, in talking with them, I, I asked them how uh, they wanted me to uh, introduce this idea. And they said, almost all of them, we are Jewish people who have found the Messiah. And probably more accurately, who have been found by him. I just want to express gratitude for their courage to come forward in these testimonies. Uh, I want to express gratitude. We're we're about to send another uh, mission couple out, Caroline and Eduardo Quintero. Uh, We'll do that more formally in a few weeks. We've just heard uh, a miracle story back from our Liberia team. Ask Alan Tolliver if you want more of it. But the essence of it was that they spent a lot of money and a lot of time getting over there with irrigation equipment to uh, provide a village with a second growing season because they had told us that there was a source of water that could supply this irrigation. And when they got there, they determined that the pumps that we had bought and taken over there would have drained that water supply in an hour. And they said, is there any others? And they remembered that there was a well that was uh, previously used, but that the villagers didn't really like the taste of the water that came out of it, uh, but they could try. And the reason that the taste wasn't good is that they didn't have a pump strong enough to go 185 feet down to the bottom of that well. And the pumps that we brought, of course, did. And it had ample water to a, a source. But it's just God keeping his promises. He, he told them to go over there and do all that. He's telling Caroline and Eduardo to go. He's told our Guatemala teams and, and all of the other teams that are working with our local mission partners. He's, he's told them to be faithful to that. And over and over and over, we get these God stories about how he keeps blessing that. So we are in a series called Promises Kept, and if you were here or have been here at all in November or December, uh, it is our continuation of the series that we said, Behold Your God. Because before we can appreciate that He kept His promise 
to the Jewish people to send a Messiah, before we can thank him for keeping his promise that the water was there to do the project that we intended, before we trust him to keep his promises to all the mission couples that we send out, we have to acknowledge his greatness, that he can keep promises, that he holds the water in the hollow of his hand, all the waters of all of the planets that have ever existed, he holds that water. He measures the universe with a span. And we have to acknowledge his glory and his greatness and our gratitude that is due him. That, that's the starting place for, for promises kept. It's, it's no good to have a promise from somebody who, who can't keep a promise. All of our financial people in here will say, don't borrow money from people that don't have any money. <laughs> if somebody can't keep a promise, then their promises aren't any good. And so the glory, the greatness, all the stuff that we've talked about with the telescope. So today I would like to do the second promise in the series. Last week we talked about that he promised he would come. He, he promised he would. And we tracked some of the scriptures in the New Testament that, that showed the promise being kept. And, and this week I want to talk about the way in which he came. Because that way is an example for us, right? That, that way is uh, the way he came humbly. That is a way that, 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 that we can imitate. So first off, it never ceases to amaze me what he did. He told us about it 800 years earlier. That's, that's when this prophecy took place, 800 years before Christ. He, he told us he would, and yet it still amazes me. God's plan involved unlikely birth, unlikely baby, unlikely setting, unlikely birth mother. And the fulfillment of that promise, that's, that's what I want to track down today, is that the way in which he came is also helpful to us as we try to be followers of Christ. And so promises kept, he said he would come humbly. Now let me set this up a little bit. The way you do something can be as important as what it is that you do. You know, the, the, the whole end justifies the means thing, that, that's not always true. Uh, sometimes the, the, the process, sometimes the, the, the journey is as important as the final outcome. And in truth, sometimes the humility that we see in Scripture is a stark contrast to the way that we really operated. And we're going to see a little bit of that in the Scripture today. So in Isaiah chapter 7, obviously it follows chapter 6. I did that math all by myself. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was called to this ministry. And that means that he was called to be a prophet who would be in the lives of kings and tell them that they're on track or more often not so much. And so in this particular story, the, the promise that God would come humbly, that God would send Messiah with a great deal of humility, and that that humility can be an example for us, 
that comes almost right after he understands he was called to this thing. And so this is one of the first times out. Well, it's important because it was a really, really desperate time. Now, I've got some of the scriptures up on screen, not all of them. Uh, but get this first. The choice is to be desperate for a solution to our immediate problem or to be desperate for God. Now, now let me, I probably don't need to, but, but let me kind of walk that a little bit. When I'm in crisis, I'm desperate for a solution right now. Get me out of crisis. The, the blue lights in my rearview mirror, I'm in crisis. The heartbeat is up. The eyes are dilated. What's my story? Uh, but the idea is, God, get me out of this is a whole different prayer than, God, whatever happens, let me know you better. Whatever happens in this let me know more of you. Let me be found more by you. Let me discover something about myself that leads to something about you. Uh, let me be desperate for you rather than desperate for an immediate solution. As I want to suggest, I, I think there's kind of two things going on here. If we understand that God is going to give us an answer, right? If we understand that God is going to show up uh, and do his thing because he's God and we're not. Why is it that we resist it? If there was a solution to my immediate crisis, why would I say, God, no thanks, I've got this. You stay wherever it is that you are. I'll kind of work things out the way that I am. And I could only come up with two reasons we would ever do that. One, our pride is really in the way. Right? We, we don't want him to get any credit. We want to get uh, all the accolades for solving whatever crisis it is. If I'm, a, if I'm a leader, I led people through crisis. I did it. I built it. I, 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 and God, I, I'm not really ready to share that. that. That's one of the reasons that we might resist God's help. The other reason is probably more accurate for all of us in here is that we have a feeling that God's going to show up and give us an answer, an action plan, some, some, some steps, but we're not going to like them, right? God's going to show up and tell us how to work our way out of this crisis, but we're really not going to like His plan. We're not going to like His solution because what He's asking me to do is going to make me step out of my comfort zone. It's going to make me trust Him beyond what I'm ready to trust Him. It's going to give me some things that I've got to do to reconcile a relationship, to admit that I was wrong, to, to admit that I had no idea how to lead in this particular case. And, and that might bring embarrassment or that might bring uh, something else. And so, so either I'm too proud for God's help or I know that he's going to help me, but I don't really like what it's going to mean for me when he does. And that's the story that we have today. I, I want to introduce you to the players that are in this story. The, the king's name is Ahaz. Now, I need to give you some geography that, that kind of helps you out. Israel at this time, or the people that were being written about in this story, they were 
divided. They, they, there was a civil war that had taken place, and now they were the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Bible people call that the divided kingdom uh, time. And so in the southern kingdom was this guy named Ahaz. In the northern kingdom was another guy. And that other guy had begun to uh, develop an alliance with the country of Syria, which is essentially the same country as Syria is today. Damascus is the capital. It was just north of where Israel is now. And so Syria and the northern kingdom were kind of joining forces because they were being attacked by another group called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are from a place that we would call Mesopotamia or, or Iran, Iraq, uh, that, that area, so north and east of where uh, Israel is. And so the Assyrian army had started to pick off smaller countries. They'd already picked off the Philistines and the Egyptians, and they had already inhabited Gaza, and they were sort of closing in on, on the northern and southern kingdoms. And so the northern kingdom said, let's make an alliance with Syria, and then maybe we can oppose these people. And the southern kingdom, Ahaz, he says, no, I don't want to do that. I want to see if I can keep my options open and see if there's a better way. So that's, that's kind of where we are. So the northern kingdom in Syria, they're really mad at Ahaz. And side note, tangent, Ahaz is a nasty person. Think of all the synonyms you can of evil, mean, nasty, fill in the blanks. He was a horrible king. He was a horrible person. His exploits are written about in 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Kings 16. And it goes on and on. This guy would, would bow down to whatever God he thought would help him at the moment. Or whatever God would help him politically. He'd worship the God of the Syrians. He'd worship the God of the Assyrians. He, he dumped all the stuff out of the temple in Jerusalem and replaced it with Assyrian idolatry because he thought that was the way forward. He even marched his own sons through the fire in order to sacrifice them to a pagan god, Molech. Nasty individual. So he's really pushing the panic button right now because these opposing armies are closing in and that kind of tells you where we are. So in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, in the days of Ahaz, it tells us who his daddy was and who else was a king. That's just like a timestamp in Scripture. It tells us exactly when this took place. So these people came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not mount an attack. When the house of David, which is Judah, the southern kingdom, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom. The heart of Ahaz, the heart of his people, shook as the trees of the forest shake like the wind. Now, I don't know how you define your current crisis. It may be job-related. It may be some family drama. It may be somebody said something bad about you on TikTok. I don't know. But if it's severe, you might say 
it is, it is causing me to shake. I can't sleep. Uh, my stomach is upset. Well, that, that's sort of the symbolism here. It caused the entire nation to shake like the trees in the forest in a high wind. I think of the hurricanes in, in Louisiana where we watch those tall pine trees just move back and forth. And they, they, they were so aggravated about all this. And so the story unfolds. The Lord said to Ahaz, to Isaiah, the prophet, go meet the king. He is likely up by the, the water source, making sure that there's enough water for the city in case there's a siege of some kind, which a good king would do. And so he said, oh, and by the way, take your kid with you. So it's take your kid to work today if you're a prophet. And so he takes his kid, and we're going, this seems bizarre. There's a war about to start, and God says to the prophet, take your kid to work. Well, why would he take his kid to work? Because of his name. His name is translated, the remnant will return, or, or the remnant will, uh, will uh, be victorious again. And so when he introduced his son to the king, the king would hear that promise. The, 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 my wife and I had this kid. We named him. The remnant will return to remind us that God is still making promises. He's still keeping promises. Just listen up. So the king is checking water source and, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Now, that's pretty good advice. You're in the middle of a crisis. Something crazy is going on. You're, you're wondering if you can trust God. In the back of your mind is, I'm, I'm prideful. I want the credit for solving this problem on my own, but it just seems insurmountable. And if God solves it, he's probably going to tell me to do stuff I don't want to do. Maybe even admit I'm wrong. Ask somebody else for forgiveness. Nah, it's just too much. And yet, let me think about it. So many of us in times of crisis, we're kind of ready, fire, aim people. Right? Uh, let, me, let me react. Let me marshal my resources. Let me check the bank account. Let me call in some markers from friends. Well, this is a nasty man. And yet, Isaiah doesn't say anything about his nastiness. He's only addressing the problem right now. God wants to act right now. He, he, he'll deal with your nastiness later. But right now, he wants to protect his people from these invading armies. And you need to just listen. Be quiet. Take a deep breath. Just relax and listen. So far, it doesn't sound like an 800-year-old prophecy to me. Or 800 years before Christ. That would make it 2,800 years ago. It sounds like what I need to know now if I'm facing a crisis. And that's, that's a whole different part of the story. But from my reaction, pride, uh, arrogance, don't want God's help to the things that I need to do before I immediately act in a way that's probably going to be hasty, be quiet, listen, relax. Because these two smoldering stumps of firebrand, in other words, Syria and the northern kingdom king, they're all smoke and no fire. 
They're Texas. They're all hat and no cattle. And there's this, 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 they're going to pass away. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a sign. Now, we think of Bill Ingvall when we think of this, this phrase. Bill Ingvall was the comedian that made a living on people who say stupid stuff in response to, I'm not supposed to say that word, people who say things that don't meet up with common sense. And, and, and so his big example is you go to the dock and there's a guy with a string of fish. He said, you catch them fish. He said, no, they just jumped in the boat all their own. Here's your sign. And, and so now God wants to give the king a sign because he's doing stuff that doesn't make any sense. He's doing stuff that flies in the face of the obvious. And so the prophet says to the king, you're having trouble trusting God in the midst of this crisis. Alan, you're having trouble trusting God in the midst of your crisis. Fill in your own name. You're having trouble trusting God in the midst of your crisis. How would you like a sign? How would you like a guarantee that God has heard you? He's going he's to show you something really obvious to make sure you know He's listening to you. How many of you want that sign? Liars? I'm not supposed to say that either. Okay, perhaps you were shy. So, but here's the deal. If God gives me a sign that He's involved in my problem, then I'm going to know for sure He's hearing me, and whatever it is that's a solution prescribed, now I don't have the option of being prideful. Now I don't have the option of solving it on my own because God's involved all of a sudden. He has showed me a definitive sign. He has intervened. He's crossed the line between heaven and earth. He showed me something concrete to say, hey, I'm involved in your problem. And now he's taken away my options. I can't be prideful anymore. And I can't resist whatever it is that he's going to tell me if I don't like what he says. So the king, like anybody that would be in that position and, and, and fully being controlled by his own arrogance, he says, no thanks, I'm good. I don't need a sign from God. That seems like an incredibly unhealthy thing to say. So Bill Ingvall would say, here's your sign. And so he, he gave him a sign, but, 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 but here we are, the, the choice is to wait on God or to rush to our own solutions, and so ask for a sign. The prophet said, you can have one. He says, I won't. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. That sounds so religious. It's just pride. And so he said, God through Isaiah said, is it too little for you to worry men that you also worry God? You are trying God's patience. That sounds unhealthy as well. And so what he was told to do was to embrace it. Embrace it. Let me catch you up. So in verse 9, he says, these guys are going to go away. And then he reminds him, one of my favorite 
lines in the whole thing is at the very last of chapter 7, verse 9. And, and Isaiah says to the king, if you are not firm in faith, then you won't be firm at all. If you won't stand with God, you're not going to stand at all. If you won't rest with God, you won't rest at all. Fill in your own blanks. But he, but he says it here. What a great phrase. If you can't be firm in your faith, you can't be firm at all. That's, that's what you got. And then the, the, the passage I just read. And in verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before the boy even knows how to refuse the evil and choose, choose the good, the two kings you dread will be deserted. So, so the firebrands, the all smoke and no fire, they're going to be gone by the time a child born today would even be weaned from his mom. Wow. Now, you may or may not remember this. I, I don't really count on you to remember everything I say in here, but, but last week I talked about prophecy in the Bible, and that sometimes prophecy is like a mountain range that you see from the distance. And from a distance, it looks like one big mountain. But as you get closer, you realize that there are some peaks that are close to you, and then some valleys between, and then some larger peaks behind those, and some valleys, and some really large peaks behind those. But the whole thing would represent a mountain range, and God's prophecy is that way. There are, are times when there are things that happen in the near term, and things that happen sort of in the intermediate term, and things that happen in the far distant term, and they're all part of the same prophecy. I believe that there was a child born in the palace to a very young woman in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language. The word virgin can mean either one who has never been with a man or one who is a very young woman recently married. And, and in this case, I believe that there was probably a child born in the palace as an example to Ahaz. If the only fulfillment of this prophecy was Jesus, it wouldn't have done Ahaz any good, right? 800 years after he died. And so I believe that there was probably a baby born in the palace just to, to, because it's a sign. God said, I'm going to give you one. And before that child is even weaned, these two kings won't be a problem. And they weren't. Now, that's another sermon. But the reason they weren't is because he did make a deal with Assyria. Assyria took care of those two kings. And then Assyria inhabited Israel. He took care of your immediate problem, brought on a really larger, bigger problem. But for right now, he's saying, there's a sign, here's your sign, here's the deal. And Ahaz would have been able to see it. Well, it goes on, and the rest of the story shows up in the New Testament. That's how we know that there is also a farther away peak that we've got to focus on as well. There are some scholars who study this and they go, oh, it was probably just the baby born in the palace during the time of Isaiah and Ahaz. It was probably that was the fulfillment. Let's give God an out. Well, the problem is that God didn't see it that way. And in the New Testament, when 
God is helping Joseph, whose wife is pregnant by somebody she says is the spirit. That spirit showed up to Joseph in the form of an angel. And and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged, before they came together as husband and wife, and that means exactly what it sounds like, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, which a groom will believe never. So her husband said, right, Spirit, got it. Why don't we just get divorced quietly? I won't make a big thing of it. You can just kind of go on back to your dad. I'll go on back about my business. And whatever spirit gave you a baby, he can take care of the baby. The angel shows up and, and says, no, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared. This is legit, right? And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take her as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Where did it go? Did I miss it? She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said in Isaiah. The virgin will conceive. In the New Testament, virgin means virgin. And Bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. So that solves the problem. Was his name Jesus or was his name Emmanuel? Well, Joseph called him Jesus. Everybody else called him Emmanuel. What does that mean? Do you remember what all this is about? Big problem. Pride. Don't want to do what God tells me to do. He's going to send me a sign. Make sure that I know that he's in charge, that he's God. I'm not... Oh, the sign is God with us. That's what the word Emmanuel means. Now, if you would play a little word game with me. Semantics by emphasis. God with us. God who measures the waters in the hollow of his hand, who marks the universe with a span, whose images of the Webb telescope were just beginning to grasp the extent of his glory, of his greatness, the vision that Isaiah had in the throne room. He is high, he is lifted up, the throne is full of of his glory, the stage, the room, the earth is full of his glory. He's that God, that big, God with us. Now flip it around. God with us. Not too busy throwing some more stars into space. Not too busy being somewhere else. He's counting the hairs on our head. He's watching the birds fall from the sky. He's measuring my problem. And he says, Alan, let me step in. Be quiet. Be still. Chill out for a minute. I've got a solution for you. That God is with us. So when Isaiah, 800 years before Christ, and an angel first century, 2,000 years ago, 
they both said the same thing. The angel didn't really care what scholars would think about this passage. He thought it referred to Christ. And I don't know about you, I'm going with the angel. Scholars, no offense, going with the angels. Because they said, okay, there is a near fulfillment, there is a far fulfillment. And guess what? There is an even farther fulfillment. The gospel, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived, he taught, he was crucified by the Romans, buried on the third day he arose. He ascended to heaven and he will return. That is the gospel. Near fulfillment probably was a baby born in the palace. 2,000 years later, Jesus was born of a virgin. That's why we sing these Christmas songs. But in the far distant future, He will return again. And He will straighten out the injustice. He will call us to Himself. If we've already died, He will resurrect us from whatever grave we're in. And He will gather us to Himself. Near fulfillment, intermediate fulfillment, far fulfillment. If we lose sight of any of that, we've lost the sight of what prophecy is. But back to humility. The baby can't do anything right? Maybe has no control, no power, no decision-making, can't do anything on his own. Jesus came as a baby, perhaps to tell us that, that all of the solutions to all of our problems, especially the biggest problem of all, that we are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, that all of that is wrapped into the humility that becomes the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, writing in Philippians, talked about a choice that Jesus made. We, sometimes we forget that, that he was in dialogue with God and, and that, that, that the Scripture says that he understood what was going on. In the garden he said, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, this crucifixion, this pain. Nonetheless, not my will, not what I'm thinking, let me submit to you in all things. And so Paul in Philippians wrote it this way, you should have your mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who although He was in the form of God, so divine in heaven, and God said, I'm going to so love the world that I'm going to send my only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. He said, Jesus, this is the deal. He was in the form of God, but He did not regard equality with God as th something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He, he came as a baby in humility when there is some big crisis going on, whether it's in our life or whether it's global or whether it's universal or whether it's the spiritual battle that we have to try to admit that we're sinners and in need of God. Whatever the crisis is, God has said to us, just like He said to Ahaz through Isaiah, relax, be still, be humble, be quiet. I have a plan. 
And that plan is Jesus. And it requires us to exercise a little bit of humility. So how do we respond? One, know that God always has a word for us. The problem with somebody having a word for us is that we have to stop talking in order to hear what they're saying. Be still and know that I am God. Relax. Two, know that God is always bigger than what you fear. Uh, My pride is in control, God. I, I hear you giving me a solution, but I don't like it. I don't like the steps that I'm... I don't want to go ask that person for forgiveness. I don't want to invest my time in that ministry. I don't want to confess my sins. I don't want to admit that I was wrong. Well, he's bigger than what you fear. He's bigger than your pride. He's bigger than admitting you're wrong. Know that humble submission to God's ways is a way to peace. I'll be real honest with you, church. I'm trusting him for a problem right now that's, that seems bigger than I can solve it. And I, I don't have that peace yet, but I have a sense that God is working it out. I have a sense of his presence. I have enough signs that he's given me to, to where I know that, that he's heard me. I know that he's in control, and I, and I bet that describes a lot of you. No Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. God with us. That he has heard us. He has received our confessions, our praise, our humility, and he showed us the way with the humble birth of a child. Would you bow your heads? Just get in your own space for a second. I wonder if that describes any of you. I wonder if there's a crisis going on that you just feel like is huge and that you need a solution. You need someone bigger than yourself to work on it. And you know in your head that you're supposed to trust God, but it's just really hard to do. I'm going to say a prayer in just a second and pray over you. I wonder if some of you are going, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I don't know a God who's that personal. I, I, don't, I, I can't wrap my mind around a God who would love me enough to come as a baby, live a life on earth as a sacrifice for my sins. If that's you, would you start that relationship today? Would you find one of our pastors or find one of the greeters out in the lobby and say, I want to start that relationship. I I want to get on that journey. I want to know how to trust a God for my problems, including my biggest problem, that I feel separated from Him. Father in heaven, thanks for the day. Thanks for the scripture that has so many layers A great story about a crazy evil king and a prophet who was obedient. The promise that in humility you would come. And in that coming you would give us a sign that you haven't forgotten us. That you love us. That you care for us. 
that God in the day to day when we have a crisis that's so big, you've given us a, a way forward to, to be still, to know that you're God, to, to hear, to not be anxious. And God, I pray for us to all have the courage to do what it is that you're telling us to do. Whatever steps that involves, whatever hard thing it involves us to do, I pray that you will remind us that you are with us, Emmanuel, that your, your presence is the greatest gift of all. So God, watch over us, hear our prayers, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.